So basically, Noah and his family, they had been on the boat for over a year. And um, after the flood, <clears throat> the waters receded. God asked, told them, go ahead, get off the boat. And um, as you can imagine, um, that would have been a pretty traumatic experience. I don't, I don't think it's anything that we could ever put ourselves really in their shoes. It's not something that we could even begin to imagine, but I tried to lay some scenarios of what that would be like if, it, if we were in that situation. But I, but I listed basically five graces that God gave them to reassure them, um, give them some reassuring blessings when they got off the boat, because obviously when they stepped off that boat, they were seeing a different world than, than when they first got on the boat, right? And the first thing was that God graced them with was procreation. Um, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these because I've got a whole other message, right, for, the, for this morning. Um, but if you think about that, you know, they had just seen people that they knew and, and the flood wiped out everyone except for, for their family. And um, so you might would think that God says, be fruitful and multiply, that what could be going through their minds is, really? I mean, what's going to happen to this next group of people? And God hadn't yet given them the covenant. That's God, the first thing God said is, get off the boat and be fruitful and multiply, right? He hadn't, he hadn't told them that I'm not going to ever do this again. Uh, the second thing that God graced them with was, was provision. He expanded their diet and said, hey, you could eat animals, not just fruits and vegetables now. Um, the third thing we saw God grace them with was a prohibition, that they were to eat animals in a different way than the animals eat animals, to distinguish, you know, the humans from the animals. Um, the fourth thing we see is that God graced them with was protection. Now that um, man would, could be predators, in a sense, to animals, animals perhaps could, you know, be predators back, but God put a fear in animals um, to humans to where, um, uh, I guess, you know, there, there's just a God-given fear in animals that, that uh, for man, okay? So God kind of gave us some protection there. And then, so the fifth thing and where we stopped, we were just getting into it, was this promise that God gave, okay? Um, as we look in... Uh, really 9 through 17, and, and it, we'll, uh, we'll just read this. We'll read 9 through 17, okay, so we can, we can finish this part from last week. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, well, I'll just stop there for a minute. First of all, you know, he, kept, he, he made the point, God made the point like seven times about everything, every living thing, every beast, every creature, so that no one would be left out, not one no one could say like, well, are they, does that include the ants, God? Does that include, you know, the insects, the mosquitoes? Yeah, it includes everything, okay? I'm never going to wipe everything out again with, with a flood. Um, and, uh, and then he goes on to say, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So <clears throat> I want us to see two things about this covenant. And um, one is that it's unconditional. And um, so what that means is there's no conditions on man, right? I mean, God didn't say, hey, I will keep my promise to you if you make sure you don't get all violent on me again and get all wicked on me again, uh, then I won't wipe out the earth again. No, no, that's not the way it is. It's God says like, I'm never gonna do this again. Whether you love me, whether you hate me, um, whether no matter what you do, I'm never gonna do this again. Doesn't matter whether you're faithful, whether you're faithless, okay? Um, the other thing about this covenant is that it's universal. It applied to all living beings, creatures, beasts, animals, human beings. And then God said that here's what I'm gonna do to help me remember this covenant and help you remember this covenant. Now, we know that like God's not scatterbrained, right? So he didn't really need, um, he didn't really need the sign for himself, right? Um, but if you ever do a study of covenants in the Bible, with every covenant, there's a sign. Um, there was a sign for this covenant, it was the rainbow. The, sign, the covenant he had with Abraham, the sign was circumcision. The, sign, the covenant that he had with the people of Israel was the law, the, the commandments. Um, the sign that we have for the new covenant is what? It's the bread and the cup. We have communion, and we're going to have that next week, I believe. So, um, so uh, there's always a sign, but God doesn't need the sign. He gives it, he gives it more to us than he does for himself. Um, but this sign is very important to him. I mean, we're, we're the people that, that have trouble remembering things. It's not, it's not him. Um, now, about this word bow, okay, some of your translations out there might have the word rainbow in it, okay? Um, the ESV just uses the word bow. Um, this word that's used for bow is the word keset in Hebrew, and um, commentators have noted that this word is used 80 times in the Old Testament, and there's only four times that it's translated in the context of the word rainbow um, that it's used in this context where it's, it's a bow in the clouds that's, you know, the beautiful rainbows that we see, right? Um, <clears throat> so they kind of concluded, <coughs> excuse me, that this is kind of a word picture or an analogy that God's giving us that he is laying aside his weapon, okay? He's, he's putting his bow in the clouds and um, he's, he's setting it aside, um, his, his, uh, <clears throat> his weapon. And... Um, I'm not an archer. We went to camp, you know, a few weeks ago with, with uh, the young people, and uh, I stayed away from the archery um, section because I'm not real good at archery. In fact, I'm, yeah, I did do, shoot the guns, and I, I did pretty good at that. But um, <clears throat> anyway, the, the thing I do know about archery is I do know where the business end of the bow is, okay? And if you think about a rainbow in the future, um, think about where the business end of that rainbow is pointed, and it's pointed to the sky. And if you think about the flood, 
um, and you think about God's judgment on the earth, um, and, and now you think about now where, where the arrows are pointed or where the arrows would go, they'd be, they'd be shooting towards him. And if you think about a rainbow in the future, you can just think about it as God shooting all the judgment and condemnation towards his direction. And we know that to be true because he took on the wrath by, by sending his son towards us and pouring all his wrath on his son, Jesus. So that's just a, a word picture I wanted to share with us this morning. If, when we see a rainbow, we can see it as both a sign that God is keeping his promise to us that he's never going to destroy the earth with a flood, and we can also think of it as that he's taken all the judgment for, upon himself and God's wrath upon himself. So um, to wrap up this section, you can see why God giving a sign to Noah and his family would be so significant because, again, um, if God hadn't given them this promise, I'm not sure they would have gone more than 100 yards away from the boat because they might have thought like, uh-oh, it's raining again, everyone back in the boat. You know, we don't, we don't know what's, what's going to happen. Is it going to rain again for 40 days and 40 nights or, uh, you know, or, or are we going to be okay? Um, I think also it would have been reassuring to Noah and his descendants because of the temptation to doubt God's compassion. You know, they're, they're going to tell the story to their kids and then they're going to tell it to their kids. Hey, when it rains, don't worry about it. God made this promise to us, okay? Um, and, but they're going to tell the story, the truth about the story, that it rained one time and this flood wiped out everybody on the earth except for us. Um, and um, lest any of us here would doubt God's compassion because of the story of Noah, um, you really have to see these verses in the New Testament that talk about Noah to understand what was going on back then, okay? In 2 Peter 2.5, and I can't remember if I mentioned this last week or not, so I'm going to say it again in case I, I didn't. It says in 2 Peter 2.5, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, okay? And then it talks about in 1 Peter that God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So um, just to be clear, it wasn't like Noah was building a boat and the people came up to him and said, hey, Noah, what are you doing? And he was like, my lips are sealed, you know. I'm not telling, you know. I got a secret from God, and I'm not going to tell you guys. Um, no, Noah, Noah preached righteousness. And, and um, from Genesis 6, I mean, I, I wasn't here the, the Sunday that David talked about Genesis 6, but we talked about it together, so I'm not sure if you said this or not, but my understanding is that God gave those people at least 100 years before the flood. Did you mention that? <laughs> Maybe about the 120 years? So God gave those people ample time to repent. He gave, he gave those people a lot of time. I mean, think about that. Think about 100 years or more of Noah saying, guys, this is going to happen. Turn to God. Turn to God. But the people were uber wicked. You know, they, they did not want to have anything to do with God. It wasn't like God didn't give them time to turn to him. Um, so what does God want us to learn about him from, from his reassuring grace? Um, I think everyone in this room that we need to know that God does not want us to wonder about his feelings towards us. And uh, he wants us to know the commitment he has made 
to finish in our souls that which he started. And um, if you could turn to Hebrews 6, and this is what's neat that, that David took us to Hebrews this morning, um, because this kind of goes in line with that, okay? Um, Hebrews 6. We'll get back to Genesis in, in a minute here, but... <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. I'm going to start reading in verse 13, um, just to get the understanding of what God is talking about when human beings make an oath, when they were making an oath, they would normally say, I swear, I swear by, I swear by someone greater than me. I swear by God. I'll never do that. You know, you can trust me because they have to swear by someone. If they said, I swear by my word, I swear by myself. And someone would go like, yeah, well, what's, what are you, what are you good for? You know? It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, in other words, God is the highest thing, who could he, he couldn't swear by anything greater than himself, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people, common people like us, swear by something greater than themselves, I swear to God, I will do this. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So back in that day, if someone like swore, hey, I swear to God, I'm going to mow your lawn. You know, people would, okay, I, I believe that you're going to do it. You know, you swore by something greater than yourself. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, that's us, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So if you ever struggle with wondering if God is favorably disposed towards you, God swore it and sealed it with an oath. The size of your bank account, the state of your health, and so forth, none of that can be looked upon as barometers of God's love. If you are looking to those things as barometers of God's love for you, it's going to fail you, okay? But here, it will not fail you. Um, if you want to know that God loves you, look to the cross, okay? Because it's there that God is proving his love to you. Um, so I love how this word picture is the writer of Hebrews gives. He says, the hope that they are talking about here is not a subjective feeling. You know, some people you might talk to around is like, well, I sure hope I go to heaven. You know, that's not what this hope is talking about. This hope is actually an objective reality that heaven is my hope. It is my hope. It's not a, like, I hope I get there someday. It's, it's my hope. Um, so what do we see about this anchor? You could say our souls are anchored to this hope. And this hope is absolutely sure, as it says that it is both sure and steadfast. This anchor is lodged in the inner place behind the curtain. Like, you know, you throw out the anchor 
and from your boat and you want it to lodge on something on the bottom of the, the lake there, this is lodged in the inner place behind the curtain. So think of it as attached to the altar of God where Jesus as high priest shed his blood for sins once and for all. Um, the significance of this is that the anchor is lodged in the finished work of Jesus our high priest. So, I mean, it's, it's solid. It's rock solid. And I, you don't have to turn here. I'm just going to read this because this, this is beautiful how God worked this out this morning for David to share what he shared. And I had this verse picked out before um, that even came up. So this was prophesied in the Old Testament by the prophet Jeremiah about, what the, about the new covenant, right? Like David said, the only conditional covenant <clears throat> excuse me, in the Old Testament was the one given to the children of Israel. He said, hey, I'm going to do this covenant with you. You'll keep my laws. I'll keep my end of the deal as long as you obey my laws, okay? The sign of that covenant is the Ten Commandments. You guys keep up with, you guys keep your end and I'll keep up my end. So what happens is the new covenant that was, obviously the people didn't keep up their end. No one can. We can't. Um, we're all sinners. But in Jeremiah, it says right here in Jeremiah 31, 31, if you just want to note the verses. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I mean, that's just, that's beautiful. I mean, he will put his law in our hearts. It's not like we have a book that like, oh, this book of rules, and I can't keep them, God, help me. I just can't keep them. No, his law will be in our hearts, and it is. So, so, so think of it this way. The one end of the rope is tethered to the absolute sure and steadfast um, promise of God that heaven is our home and the other end of the rope with the anchor is lodged in my understanding and the altar that we could also say is the blood of the eternal covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood that we celebrate with the sign of communion. So we can think about that next week as, as well when we're having communion time. So um, it's an unconditional covenant, the new covenant. And um, there may be times that our weak hands let go of the rope right? But the rope is not ever going to let go of us, okay? And I wanted to ex just explain this in a, so you can get a, a picture of this. Um, so uh, this is kind of funny, but so Deanna put the um, video together from when we went to camp, right? And uh, she was telling me that like, hey, it was kind of hard. I wanted to put you in the video of when you went down the zip line, but you were on that platform for like forever, you know? <laughs> And so they put the harness on me, and I climbed up the platform. But, I mean, it must have been, it seemed like an eternity before I, you know, scooted off the platform to go down the zip line because 
I was just confused. I was up there. They had the harness. He tethered me to the zip line, but he gave me something to hold on to, this like stuff and the rope. And in my head, I, he was saying like, hold on to this rope. Hold on to this. Don't let go of this. And I could not understand if what he was saying was, it depends on you. If, if you let go of this, you are going to fall. And it was really high up there, okay? <laughs> so I was worried about that. And so I, and my, my brain was going, I don't know if I want to go because it's dependent on my, the strength of my grip here. And so, but really all it was is you're holding on to stuff that, that they need at the bottom to get you off of the zip line and stuff. So, okay, you really could go down the whole line just like this and you're not going to fall. And so, um, so that's, to me, that's a perfect picture of what's going on here. I mean, in the Christian life, does God want us to hold on to? Yes, he does. I mean, Paul talks about striving and to know the Lord. I mean, that's, that's holding on. And, uh, but there's times in our lives that our hands are weak. There's times in our lives that we let go of the rope. But guess what? We're not going, we're not going anywhere. We are tethered to the line. We are tethered to that line that, that is connected to the anchor. So um, let's just pray, and then we'll get into the um, portion of today. Father, I just want to just take this time to thank you for that you are a covenant-making God, you're a covenant-keeping God, and that, um, that you did establish a new covenant that's unconditional for us. God, there's much that we can learn from today's passage, Lord. Um, and God, I pray that... Um, You'd help us to see ourselves in this passage today. You'd help us to see you, and um, you'd help us to see your grace in this passage as well today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to... If I, if I said the word cover-up, there's been a cover-up. You know, what would go in your head? You'd probably think something negative, right? There's been a cover-up. Um, so we think of it as a bad thing, right? And a lot of times the cover-up is worse than the original crime, right? Um, but um, the cover-up that we're going to look at today is actually much more glorious than the crime, okay? So today's title is redeeming, The Redeeming Covering of the Savior, um, <clears throat> so did you, um, you don't have to raise your hands, uh, but, um, just think it, think it in your head. Okay. Did you ever, when you were a kid, were you ever involved in like bullying other kids? Okay. <clears throat> don't raise your hands. Uh, I was, and, and I, I remember, I remember in elementary school, there was a kid whose name was Bob Sneed. Um, and um, I don't know why, it just seemed, sounded like a funny name, Bob Sneed. And I don't know, there was, just, there was something odd about the kid, I guess. I, I don't know, this was like first or second or third grade. 
I don't even remember, but I just remember it was elementary school. And obviously we had learned something about Patrick Henry at this point in time of our schooling because we knew the famous line, give me liberty or give me death, right? Because a bunch of us would like, we made up this chant, you know, like to, to kind of taunt him. And it went like this, give me liberty or give me death, but please don't give me Bob Sneed's breath. Okay. So um, anyway, when, when I think about that now, I just think poor Bob Sneed. I mean, I, I bet that kid just felt alone. I bet he felt lonely. I mean, it just wasn't right, you know? I mean, it, uh, I just feel really bad now to, to, to think of what that boy, you know, felt like from, from what we were doing. And so <clears throat> I was just going to share something about, um, I mean, does everyone know what trolling is? Has everyone heard the word trolling? Okay. Um, on the internet. Um, so I wanted to share this article about trolling, okay? Online trolling is an epidemic and it's threatening our way of life. It's the nastiest byproduct of the social media revolution and one that far too many experience either passively or directly on a daily basis. It's called trolling, but despite its somewhat whimsical name, it has become a modern day plight that ranges from the harmless to the heinous. Um, the millions of life-altering experiences others have had has helped inspire Time Magazine's latest cover story, uh, but this is actually three years ago, okay? It was called, Why We're Losing the Internet to the Culture of Hate. Complemented by an image of a troll creature maniacally staring into a laptop, it's a six-page investigative spread that takes a look at how online harassment, aggression, and violence is beginning to have an effect on our individual and collective psyches as well as society at large. Trolling has exposed a weakness in our ever-evolving tech-obsessed world, and as we continue to develop into a society in which all things large and small, personal and extra-personal, are shared on the web, our weakness could very well have dire implications for our ability to self-assess and heal. As Stein writes, it's all, it all begins at the beginning, when the World Wide Web was a place with lofty ideals about the free flow of information. But then something curious happened. What began as a bastion for open and free communication became a hotbed for hateful words and eventually it became so omnipresent a name was needed for the trend. Psychologists call this the online disinhibition effect in which factors like anonymity, invisibility, a lack of authority, and not communicating in real time strip away the mores society spent millennia building. The people who relish this online freedom are called trolls, a term originally came from a phishing method online thieves use to find victims. The fact that finding victims is a part of what makes a troll a troll signifies how harmful their behavior can be. Stein lists clever pranks to harassment to violent threats as being the spectrum of behaviors trolls engage in, but it's their potential side effects which truly have the lingering effect. These can range from the relatively benign like hurt feelings or an embarrassing photo to the more, far more severe, such as depression, and in many cases, suicide. While not all cases of trolling are particularly newsworthy or extreme, they are no less indicative of a troubling trend in which employment is take, enjoyment is taken in the an, anonymized online mistreatment of others. According to a recent Pew Research poll cited by Stein, 70% of internet users between the ages of 18 and 24 reported online harassment 
and a staggering 26% of women in that age group reported being the targets of online stalking. The scariest component of this data is not the frequency necessarily, but the kinds of people doing their harassing and stalking. As a society, Mercer University literature professor Whitney Phillips says, we tend to think of trolls as aberrational and antithetical to how normal people converse with each other. And that could not be further from the truth, adding, these are mostly normal people who do these things that seem fun at the time, that have huge implications. You want to say this is the bad guys, but it's a problem of us. The takeaway here is that <clears throat> it has become easy and thrilling to hate a stranger online, um, especially to get clicks of affirmation or even worse, a lot of people just do this for money. Every time they get a click, they get money. Um, and unfortunately, this has even devolved into the Christian community and um, where we shoot our wounded. And instead of running towards um, our brothers and sisters uh, who we, um, to restore them, um, we heap on condemnation from the safe distance of a computer screen. And, um, and we withdraw from each other um, rather than running to them and applying healing balms that the gospel offers. And um, um, this, is just, this is just not right. This is just not in line with, with, um, with God himself. And that's what, you wonder why I started with this, but because we're going to see in this passage today um, that God is nothing like this. And um, God would not condone um, this type of behavior. And if we're engaged in this type of behavior, we should stop it. And um, we should not be giving our clicks. We should not be trolling people. And we should not be giving our clicks to people that are trolling people to encourage and um, empower them to make money off of it, to give them affirmation from doing it. Um, but let's, let's, let's look at, um, at this. So, um, because our God, right, our God sees us in all of our guilt, and our God sees us in all of our shame, and our God sees us in all of our nakedness and our self-exposure, and what does he do? He doesn't shout at a distance condemnation to us. He, he runs to us. He comes alongside us to restore us. Um, so I, let's put the two and two together and show how this um, text um, brings us to this concept. So we'll start by reading uh, just 18 through 21 here. <clears throat> and this gives us a, a bit of a foreshadow. Actually, we'll just start verse 18. Um, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. So you might first question come up would be like, why is it important for Moses to point out that Ham was the father of Canaan right here? Um, in my understanding, he's doing so because, again, Moses is writing this, and he's writing it after the people um, came through the Red Sea. And um, so he's given this history back in, in Genesis. He's writing this to the people, and they're getting ready to go invade the land of Canaan, right? So um, this is a bit of a foreshadow of Canaan. And uh, what Moses is trying to show from the very start is that this type of brokenness uh, for which God was expelling the Canaanites from the land 
was in a sense built into their, into their DNA, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but this was a nation, the Canaanites, that started in perversion, and um, history tells us that the Canaanites were a terribly depraved uh, people. They had thrown off every single norm of morality, um, and um, you can read about that in history books. Um, they weren't the only ones, but that was part of the reason why God was expelling them from the land. Um, so it says here in verse 20 that Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. <clears throat> so um, we don't know really what Noah was before he started building the ark, right? He, he might have been a farmer before he built the ark. We don't know that. He could have been. Maybe he was a businessman. I don't know. But, um, but then he, he went through this stressful time, right? I mean, you would think that that would be pretty stressful to go through what he went through. And um, after the flood, he obviously settled into um, a life of, of farming, um, which, you know, I'm not a farmer. Maybe it's very stressful. It probably is. But I'm thinking that maybe it was more of a peaceful, quiet life. Okay, so, so maybe after the stress that he had just been through, he wanted to settle into a more uh, placid life. Um, now, I'm going to read verses, if we just look at verses 20 and 21 together, it's like the writer has written this in a very elementary fashion. He doesn't put a lot of details in here. He just, uh, it's almost like just like, he writes it like in an, like I said, in a, in, a, in a children's book manner. It's just very straightforward. So it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And um, I think he wrote it that way because he wanted to just connect the dots there between Noah became a farmer, planted a vineyard, and he ended up naked in his tent. Um, several commentators have pointed out how ironic it is that Noah was able to stand against hordes of wickedness, and the man who endured these revilings was brought low by a bottle of wine. Um, and that's a great warning to all of us that, um, you know, we're, we're only as spiritual as we are in the moment. You know, it's not like um, we can let... As Paul said it, more or less, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Um, now, I want to be clear, in the Bible, wine is a sign of God's blessing. Jesus, in fact, turned water into wine. But I also want to be clear that the Bible universally and without any exception at all condemns intoxication. And we'll talk about this uh, at the end. Um, but here, in this situation, Noah succumbed to intoxication. And I want us also to notice here that God is not, he's not making any excuses for Noah, right? I mean, based on what Noah went through, um, you could give him the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, you know, he had some deep psychological difficulties that were going on in his mind. Um, you know, who, who, who's ever been through what Noah went through? Um, but God doesn't afford him any of those excuses. It just says, Noah sinned, he got drunk, and in his drunkenness, he took off his clothes to where his family members could see him. And um, the writer is trying to show us that even though God is starting over with a family of worshipers, here sin would continue to reign in even the most righteous of men. Now, 
that might sound seem on the one hand as a negative, but actually it's a positive because it's not like sin went away after the flood, okay? Sin is going to continue in the human race. So, because God's not done yet, okay? God's not, that's why there is the new covenant. Um, so you might want to write down just two more verses, Habakkuk 2.15 and Lamentations 4.21. We won't go to them, but these are two of the verses where the Bible expresses disapproval of drunkenness that leads to nakedness. Um, and so now Noah is lying there in his tent, and now we're going to come to Ham's offense. And we'll notice in 22 that Ham happened upon his father in his drunken state. So it says in 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So what we don't know is, we don't know if, if this is something that happened frequently to Noah, right? We don't know if Noah became a drunkard, as it were. We don't know if this was just a one-time offense. We don't have any of those details. The only thing that we know that is on this particular day, irrespective of Noah's past, irrespective of his future, is that on this day, Noah was lying drunk in his tent, um, and naked, and his son Ham stumbled upon him. And, uh, and again, the Bible wants to put this association in here with Canaan. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And um, so Ham, in this situation, right, instead of having an honoring attitude towards his father, instead of running to his father's state of disgrace and attempting to restore him, Ham, with a total lack of discretion, took delight in his father's shame, and he ran outside of the tent and publicized it to his brothers. Um, this brings a verse to my mind, Proverbs 17, 9, that warns, he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. How much more serious when that gossip adds to one's parents' disgrace? Um, I'm sure in a room this size, all of us have had frequent opportunities where we've seen the shame of our parents um, or family members, right, for that matter, act sinfully or fail shamefully. Is your first response like Ham to take delight in that, to broadcast that to other family members for the sake of disgracing that one person even more? Or do you have a mind to restore and redeem them like Shem and Japheth did? Um, I think back, <clears throat> I mean, you guys might think this is a funny story, but it really isn't that funny. Um, but for all, a lot of you guys that are brothers and sisters in here, younger people <clears throat> still growing up in your households, when your brother or sister gets in trouble, do you take delight in that? You know, or you're like, yes, yes, they just got in trouble. You know, I take great delight in that, you know. Um, I, I think of when I, um, it, junior, I, I think I was even in high school probably. I was like a freshman probably. My brother was older than me. He used to get in trouble a lot. I remember one time, I mean, he was supposed to be home by midnight. He got home at like 2 in the morning, and I remember my parents were just giving him the business the next day. And I was, we had like a split-level house, so I was up there. I had my little cassette recorder, and I... I was taping the whole conversation from the upstairs. And, um, 
and, and, and just listening to his lame excuses about like how he got lost and, you know, and everything. And I'm just like, he knows his way around the city. I mean, he didn't get lost and, and this and that. And so, <clears throat> but I was taking a lot of delight in, in hearing them give him the business, you know, and grounding him. And uh, I don't know. And, and me and my brother really, we really weren't that close. Well, maybe part of the problem was I had the wrong attitude towards him. I was really like adversarial towards him instead of, you know, godly towards him. I wasn't a Christian at the time. I mean, that's, maybe that's my excuse. I don't know. But I'm just saying we have opportunities where family members' failings are going to bubble to the surface, okay? And we have opportunities where we can demonstrate godliness to them, okay? And come alongside with an attitude to restore them. Um, so let, let's look at verse 23, okay? Verse 23 says, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Ham walks outside, um, he gloats over his father's shamefulness, and his two brothers take action. They don't sit around and debate. They don't um, call their dad a hypocrite. They don't sit around and wonder how their father could have stood against the multitudes and fallen prey to a bottle of wine. They just had pity on their dad. And instead of rejoicing in his shame, instead of shaking their heads in self-righteousness, they move towards their dad with an eye to restore his dignity and to redeem him. So we don't have any words, right, that the brothers said. We don't have any words that the brothers said to each other. We don't have any words that the brothers said to Ham. We don't have any words that the brothers said to their dad. Um, but obviously they crafted a plot in which they would take great pains to not see their dad in his shame in order to not disgrace him. And I think the writer intentionally show, uh, slows down the text here so that the reader can appreciate their deeds in restoring their dad. Um, it, it gave one line to Ham about what he did, and it gives several lines to the pains that these brothers took to, to, um, to not disgrace their father, to restore his dignity. <clears throat> um, and I guess the point I want to make is sometimes saying nothing can um, be a rebuke. To, to people. Um, we don't have a record that they said anything to Ham, but, but you know that what they did had to have lodged a rebuke in Ham as they just took action to restore their father's dignity. Um, it's not easy to help people in their worst moments, is it? I mean, do you think this was easy for Shem and Japheth to do? Um, do you think they took pleasure in doing what they did? Um, I don't think so but it was a godlike thing to do. <clears throat> I was going to share a story of something I had to do when I was in high school on behalf of my brother, but it would, it would put him in a bad light, so I'm not going to share it. But it was, it was incredibly difficult um, to try to restore his dignity. Um, now we're going to move on to Noah's response. Um, he rises from his drunkenness 
And the only words that we have recorded from Noah are recorded right here in verses 25 through 27, right? So <clears throat> we've read, <clears throat> excuse me, this is the end of three chapters talking about Noah, and the Bible only records Noah's actual you know, words in, in this section right here. Um, so I think we need to have a little bit of sympathy on Noah this morning, right? He, okay, here's a man who lived 950 years. Um, he lived 350 years after the flood. And, um, and you know, it, if he died and he got the opportunity to go to heaven, wouldn't you think one of his first things to God would be like, I lived 350 years after the flood, God, and you had to write this? You know, I mean, couldn't you put some of the good things that I did, you know, in the book? You know, why do you have to, like, shame me, you know? Um, I think a takeaway from that is that we need to understand that we, don't need, we should not minimize that because there are moments that are greatly consequential in our lives that, can, that we can't undo, and sometimes those moments can come to define us. I think that's a takeaway from this. Um, so this moment, unfortunately, was a defining moment for Noah. And, um, and I know that sounds really grim, um, but I'm not going to leave us hanging there, okay, because God is the God of all hope. And, uh, and I won't leave us here before I'm finished, okay, because it appears that, like, God is using this to define Noah's life. But uh, like I said, I won't leave us here. Okay, <clears throat> so let's read the cursing and blessing here in verse 25. He said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So I want us to notice that he professes this cursing and this blessing, and he says, Cursed be my grandson. He says, Cursed be Canaan, not Ham. Um, so what most commentators believe here is not that, that um, Noah was uh, pronouncing, um, he wasn't creating the will of God. It wasn't like Canaan was a blank slate and whatever Noah said, now God was going to write that as the story of Canaan's life. But, but I don't know if you remember like when oftentimes in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come on someone and they would prophesy you know, God, most commentators believe that, that basically Noah broke out into prophetic, you know, speech here, okay? And this was God's spirit prophesying through Noah um, in, in these words here. And that it's, it's more that um, this prophecy was speaking to the truthfulness of what Canaan, that Canaan would be a servant to his brothers. Um, uh, now, why Canaan? Um, it might be because... Canaan, as I said, the Bible is trying to point out in, in these verses ahead of time that Canaan had these, these tendencies that Ham had, right? Ham didn't have much discretion when it came to um, uh, morality. And perhaps Canaan had some of these same tendencies that his dad had. And um, so, um, you know, God knew that this was going to play out in the future um, down that line, down that family tree. Okay, and so Noah gives us curse. You know, I've noticed in my son Ham that he has these tendencies and they are played out to an even greater consequence than my grandson Ham. Um, now, I don't know about you all, but 
Um, sometimes when I've read this in the past, you know, I picture that like Noah woke up from his tent. He ran out of the tent and he just started like cursing, you know, uh, Ham. But as I thought about it more, you know, having children, having grandchildren, do you really think that this would have been easy for Noah to say? Right? Do you think, how many of you think it'd be easy to just curse your children or to curse your grandchildren? Right? I mean, the, even if you even if you thought it, you wouldn't want to say it right out loud. Um, um, if you if you knew that your child had bad tendencies, you wouldn't want to memorialize it, right, in a curse. Um, I think Noah spoke these words through tears. I think Noah spoke these words through a sense of his own failures and, and shame um, as, the, as the Spirit was prophesying through him. Um, so I want us to notice something when Noah speaks about Shem and Japheth too. Um, it says here, and this is the difference between man writing the Bible. I think this is another example that shows that God wrote the Bible, not man, right? Um, or God wrote the Bible through man. Because right here in verse 26, if, you were, if man was writing the Bible, wouldn't man have wrote, blessed be Shem, you know? Because like, wow, my son Shem did this great thing for me. Blessed be Shem. But since God wrote the Bible, he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, right? And let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Um, and this is right in line with Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Um, that's what's going on here. Um, because when someone does something to you that blesses you, if your children do something that blesses you, you're really thankful that God is working in your children. You know, you're thankful to God that he's working in your children. Um, now, God gives the priority to the older brother Shem, but, but Japheth is blessed also. And, and this is really a play on words because the Hebrew word for Japheth is large. So God is really saying, may God enlarge large. It's kind of funny if you think about it. But um, how many of you would name your next child large? Okay, oh, there you go. <laughs> so <clears throat> I, um, I would only name my next child large if my wife would let me name his middle name in charge. And then he could be large and in charge, Herman. Um, that would be, that'd be cool. Um, okay, so the last thing we're going to look at is just the takeaways, all right? from this passage, <clears throat> excuse me. So there's six takeaways. Um, all right, number one, in almost every counseling time I've been a part of, whether it be for me, you know, I've, I've gone to counseling before, or whether it be interacting with others, all right, without fail, and, and maybe some of you guys have been in counseling situations, but without fail, the topic that inevitably comes up is wrong suffered by one's parents. Most of the time, the counselors get to what's going on with your parents. You know, how were you raised? What, 
You know, how is that relationship with your parents, right? And, and the Bible speaks directly to that in this passage, um, directly to how to respond to your parents in their worst moments. Um, this is, I don't know if anyone's ever experienced this or not, but about four years ago, I went to a funeral. It was, it was like a distant person, you know, not really, really close person. I'd never seen anything like it, but I assume that the, the man who died uh, was probably an alcoholic of some, and, um, and they mocked him. They, they had an open casket, you know, it was like, it was at a funeral home, and they had put beer cans and bottles in the, in the, in the casket there, and because I went up there to like observe, and it was just, it's like the whole family was just mocking him. And um, I, it was the most distasteful thing I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and I was thinking, what if, what, if one, what if one child of that man, what if one child of that man just quietly walked up there, grabbed all the bottles and beer cans, just walked them over, put them in the nearest trash can, and then went back and sat in his seat, you know? That would have just been a rebuke to all of the, the family members that were just making a mockery of the man um, without saying a word. Um, and that's, that, that, that would have been the godlike thing to do. Um, number two, <clears throat> I want us to see that wine is a mocker, as Proverbs 20 verse 1 says. Now, I want to be clear this morning, I'm not saying that God in the Bible does not present wine as a blessing, because he does. He talks about, I think, a couple different times, says, may their grain and new wine abound. So I'm not condemning that. Um, but, but the one point I also want to be clear on is that the Bible condemns everywhere. It condemns drunkenness, and it condemns intoxication. And so how many times is too many times to be drunk in front of your kids? Well, in my mind, one time would be too many. So if you've ever found yourself on the intoxicating end of a bottle, then God may be asking you to make some changes this morning. That'd be number two. Number three, I want us to see that God cares about modesty and pornography. It's not a victimless sin. It wasn't a victimless sin here. I mean, perhaps Noah might have thought, well, no one's going to walk in on me. You know, it's not going to happen, um, but it did. Um, and we can't be naive to think, especially in our world, right, in our, in our day, where we have instant accessibility to images in an instant, that this is not a problem. Um, more than ever, the words of Paul make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts are so important to heed. And... Um, I just want everyone to know that like, there are tools available for, to protect you and your families from pornography. I mean, there, there are good tools out there. Um, and this is, this is something that, that we need to be extremely vigilant about. I mean, I, uh, 
I wanted to get a, a Kindle one time, I think, so I could like read books, you know, electronically. You got to, it doesn't matter. You might get like a Fit, wow, it would be neat to have a Fitbit or this or that or Kindle or something. I mean, all of these devices, there's most electronic devices these days have some Wi-Fi capability. You just got to be, don't be naive about it, you know. Be, be, be vigilant about knowing what has access to what so that you can take pains to block things that need to be blocked, okay? Um, and if you don't know how to do that, talk to somebody. Talk to me. Talk to Eric. Talk to David. Talk to someone who is savvy in technical things, and, and, um, and we can help um, to show you how to do that. Um, the fourth thing is sin is always consequential. Do you think when Noah popped the cork on that bottle of wine on that day that by the end of the day he would have thought that he would be cursing his grandson? I don't think so. But that day got away from him pretty quickly. And um, that just goes to show that Peter says our adversary is is roaming about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we cannot give our adversary the slightest little opening because he will take it. And if you think about a lion, I think that's a great analogy that Peter used because lions are just, they're ready to pounce, right? You give them a little opening and they are going to pounce. Um, Satan is not impressed by our years of faithfulness. He's not impressed by our track record. You know, if Satan wasn't impressed by Noah's track record, then he's not going to be impressed by mine or yours. Um, so the message here is keep your eyes straight in front of you. Remain diligent. Remain active in your mind. Remain sober. Um, number five, children often bear the weight of our sin. It was Ham's son Canaan who bore the weight of Noah's of Ham's sin, and it was Noah's son Ham who bore the weight of Noah's sin. So fathers especially, remember that the next time temptation comes knocking at your door. And the last um, application here is finally, restoring the fallen is the godliest of all endeavors. Um, do you realize that when you were sick with your sin, when you were laying uncovered in the drunkenness of your pursuits of this world, that God moved towards you and he reached down to save you. In Mark 1, it says that the Spirit of God, I'm just going to give you some examples of how God moved towards us. In Mark 1, it says the Spirit of God literally drove Jesus into the wilderness to suffer temptations on our behalf. Um, it says in 1 John, God sent his Son on a rescue mission. So God is not standing back passively waiting for us to come to him he is rushing towards us, like the story of the father and the prodigal son. After the son had wallowed in sin for years, and then the father sees him at the end of the long driveway, that father was running to the, to the son and, and practically tackled him at the end of the driveway. And your God wants to run to you. Your God wants to restore you. So wherever you find yourself this morning, whatever sin you have wallowed in, God is running to you right now, and he wants to restore you. Some of you might say, too late, 
too much water under the bridge. I am far too hard a heart for God to get through. I'm going to share a verse in a minute, but let me just say, please don't flatter yourself with that kind of language because that's just pride. All right, that's just your pride. You, you, you think that God can't get through to you? That's God is way bigger than that, all right? And I'm going to read this Psalm 107. I'd encourage everyone to write it down. Psalm 107, 13 through 16. It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down gates of bronze and cuts through bars of iron. So you think he can't get through to you? He absolutely can. So cry out to him and he will begin the restoring process. He will clothe you with the righteousness of Christ and he will make you whole and no longer do you need to be defined by your worst moment. And I said that I'd come back to that, right? I said that I wouldn't end on the grim note that sometimes we can be defined by some action or decision we make that has great consequences on our lives. But we can let Jesus define us. The loving grace that comes with Christ in your heart can define you if you want it to. Um, so do we see the story, right, in Genesis of Noah's last 350 years um, that defined him in a negative way? We, we do. It's there. We, we admit it. Um, a story that Noah might would prefer, you know, remained untold. But at that time, right, the last chapters weren't written in Noah's life, right? Because if you keep going through the book, right, eventually you get to Hebrews, right? And Hebrews 11.7 says this about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And then it didn't stop there because you go, keep going, the book's not finished. You get to 2 Peter and it says about Noah, and, didn't, and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So the New Testament paints Noah as one to be looked to as an example of faith. So let Jesus restore you to your true identity in him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God that, that runs to us, God. You, I know it's our human tendency oftentimes to distance ourselves from our brothers and sisters. I don't, I don't know why, I don't know what it is in us that But you're like a magnet to us, God. You're, when we fall, when we fail, you're like a magnet. We thank you for that, God. You're like, my grace is going to cover that because I don't want that to define you. <clears throat> my grace is going to define you. Um, what I did for you is going to define you. We're so grateful for that this morning, God. I pray, God, that if there's anyone here that does not...
understand that God does not has not does not think of you as anything but a God that is for them and that is just running to them with open arms to restore them God that you would help them to see the light you would help them to see that that's who you really are and that they would cry out to you God to be their father, to save them. So Lord, we're just so grateful this morning, God. I pray, God, that you would help us to be like you to our brothers and sisters, especially. I pray that you'd help us to be like you to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.